Romans 3, 19 through 20 is the passage we'll be looking at this morning. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? This passage comes from Romans 3, it's verses 19 through 20. It is the last two verses of the first section of Romans. It marks the clear transition from the condemnation of all humanity to the presentation of the gospel received by faith, which begins next week in verse 21. So these are the last two verses of this section. Give your ears, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now let me ask you, if you would, give your attention to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with this, we have been working to memorize portions of the book of Romans, and so we will read this together for at least the next five weeks. So the Lord God will work in our hearts to memorize this passage of Scripture. So read together with me, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Please be seated and join me once more in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this epistle to the Romans. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you have revealed yourself. We thank you especially for your son, Jesus Christ. We know that the things we speak about, even this morning in Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, that the things we speak about are not possible apart from Jesus Christ, your son and our Savior. So would you help us to live in him, being joined together with him by faith, that we might have the eternal inheritance purchased by him for us. Help us to rest on him alone for your glory and for our good. In his name we ask all of this. Amen. I want to tell you this morning that I have very little experience with the inside of a courtroom. I have very little experience with the inside of a courtroom. As a matter of fact, everything that I know with a courtroom has largely come from Judge Judy. And I I know you'll laugh. You probably wouldn't admit it, but you've all seen Judge Judy. Okay, you know Judge Judy. It has come from maybe two or three experiences in family court with some of our foster children. And from one time that I was in a court way back when I was in college. And I want to tell you this story. It's kind of a funny story. It helped transition, though, into our passage this morning. When I was in college, I think I was probably a freshman, I had uh, gotten a speeding ticket, and it wasn't my first speeding ticket. It was 
probably like my third speeding ticket in a row. And I was very concerned with what was going to happen to me and specifically to my license, my, my, my driver's license. And so as I was kind of um, uh, frustrated and trying to figure out how do I solve this problem, my, my wife, she wasn't my wife at the time, but she suggested, she said, you should go to court. I've heard that if you go to court, they will reduce your penalty. And it sounded like a, a great idea, and so I, I planned for that day to, to be off work and to be out of school, and I, I went uh, to the courthouse, and when I arrived there, it was all these people. I think it was, they do it all on the same day. Anybody who's challenging their, their speeding tickets. So we're all there and all waiting in line. Some people were before me, and some people were after me. And I remember I, I went to the courtroom when it was my turn, and there was the judge. There was a few other people in the room, and the judge asked me the question right away. She said, um, how do you plead? And I was taken by surprise because I didn't think about what I was going to plead. Um, and so I, I said to the judge, well, what do you mean? And, and the judge said, well, um, what do you plead? Are you guilty or innocent? I said, I, I'm not sure. What, what do you mean? And she said, well, were you over the speed limit or were you not over the speed limit? And so immediately I was taken aback because I thought, okay, where does the time come when she um, reduces my penalty? That's what I'm, I'm, I'm really here for. And, and so I said to, the, uh, said to the judge, because I thought, okay, I'm going to admit I'm guilty, and then we'll get to the portion where she reduces the penalty. So I said, well, um, I guess I'm guilty. I was over the speed limit, so I'm, I'm guilty. And the judge kind of looked at me with a uh, sort of bewildered look, and then she said, okay, uh, your sentence stands, on to the next person. And, and they kind of ushered me out of the courtroom, and that was my a one minute and 30 second experience uh, in a courtroom before a judge. And I, it's a very, you know, comical experience. A lesson was learned. Um, I definitely won't go uh, uh, to challenge a speeding ticket unless I have good grounds to challenge uh, the, the finding of the court. But um, this morning, whether you've ever been inside of a courtroom or not, this morning um, it is obvious as Paul's speaking, and this is something we haven't mentioned yet, but it's obvious that Paul, as he works through this epistle to the Romans, is largely trying to color our experience according to a courtroom scene, okay? He's trying to lay out in his epistle a scene in which we, are, we appear in a courtroom before a judge. Many people have described the epistle to the Romans as the cosmic court scene. Okay, it is the cosmic court scene. And, and for very good reason, because all along the way, the Apostle Paul has been telling us that God the Father sits on his throne judging all humanity, okay? And there he is as the judge on his throne. And as we've been reading through the epistle to the Romans, we have seen the Apostle Paul as the prophetic voice of God. He is the one who's bringing the prosecution. And through chapters 1 through 3, you have seen him prosecuting the case, right? And he's been prosecuting a very good case. And, and what has really happened in chapters 1 through 3 is the aha moment. The question in chapters 1 through 3 has really been, well, who's the defendant? Okay? Who is seated in the seat of the defendant, defending themselves by the prosecution of the Apostle Paul before God the Father who's the judge? And you see what the question has been. It's been, okay, well, well who is the defendant? Is it the Gentiles? Is it people who have really been egregious and broken the law and God is really upset with them? Is it some other type of people? I mean, who is defending their case before God the judge? And the big moment in Romans 2 and 3, the moment we saw just last week again, is the moment where Paul says, no, the defendant is all humanity. It is all human beings, men, women, children, 
right? Slave, free. Okay, it is all humanity seated in the seat of the defendant. And, and that has been the revelatory moment in Romans chapter 3 that brings us now to the, to the passage we read this morning. The courtroom scene has been set. And this morning the Apostle Paul moves on to transition to the rest of the book. And let me tell you something. Here, here is what Paul is speaking about this morning. He transitions away from the courtroom, but from, really from our condemnation. We're still in the courtroom. And he begins to talk about this idea this morning. The idea is of justification. So this morning he begins a conversation on justification. And uh, listen, here's what I'm going to tell you. I, I want to draw a picture. I want to begin with a picture this morning, but this picture, I hope, will help you to navigate the rest of the book of Romans, okay? This is going to be an overarching picture. It's my picture, but I think it helps us to make sense of the rest of the epistle to Romans that is built off of the first three chapters where we find ourselves seated in the seat of the defendant, accused by the apostle Paul, guilty before God the judge, seated on his throne. Now here's the picture that's going to help us to navigate the rest of the epistle of the Romans. If you're an artist or you like to be a visual learner, you can draw this on your handout. Okay, there's a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. The horizontal axis, uh, axis represents the course of time. The vertical axis, uh, axis represents the things that take place outside of time. The Apostle Paul, through the epistle to the Romans, will speak about things in the course of time. He will also speak about things that happen outside of time, before the foundation of the earth. All right? Now, on this vertical axis, Paul will always emphasize the fact that the glory of God, the glory of the triune God, from before the foundation of the earth all the way into eternity future, the glory of God is the controlling factor. All that happens before the foundation of the earth and all that happens in the course of history and the redemption of man is for the glory of God. These are the controlling factors. One of the big questions that's always going to be asked, not only in the Gospels and in the epistles, but especially in this epistle to the Romans is, from the creation and after the creation, the fall of man, how does the glory of God manifest in the fall of man? Okay? That is to say, when when in the garden, Adam and Eve fall into sin and death enters in the world, how does the glory of God manifest in that? What does it look like for God to be glorified in the fall of man? Paul's going to introduce a new conversation as well. He will say that at the fall of man, the people of God, are, they fall into sin, but one day they will be glorified. Okay, so you can write glorified all the way over here at the end of the course of history. Glorified, that's when we're joined together with Him. That's when we spend eternity with Him. It's when we're, we're made perfect and righteous, perfectly, okay? And so one of the questions that the Apostle Paul is going to wrestle with is, how does the glory of God, be, how does it manifest in fallen creatures that one day they're actually glorified before Him? All right, that's what we're wrestling with. And he will go on to speak about, in this epistle, things that happen outside of time, okay? The foreknowledge of God. You remember that. He's going to talk about those he foreknew. He predestined. These are things that happened before the foundation of the earth. And you might be like, you might be cringing when you hear those words like, ugh, I don't want to talk about foreknowledge and predestination. Maybe you have a bad pastor 
some unique perspective. I don't know, but these are things that are going to come up in the epistle of the Romans. They happen outside of time for the glory of God, overseeing the, the fall of man and ultimately our glorification. But in the course of time, Paul's going to speak about things like our call. What does it mean that we're called by God? And then he'll speak about regeneration. Okay, the, the heart that's regenerated. And then over here, he'll speak about justification. And he'll speak about adoption. And he'll speak about sanctification. And then all of this, the glory of God, those he foreknew and predestined, uh, the glory of God exercised over the fall that he would call men and regenerate their hearts, that they'd be justified, adopted, sanctified, finally glorified. It resulted in eternity future in the communion of the saints. Okay, this is all for the glory of God that we would one day commune with him. These are the things that Paul's laying out in the epistle to the Romans, okay? Now here's why I want you to see this picture. This morning, he introduces the word justified. Okay, this morning we're going to talk about justification. One of the dangers, though, as we read Romans is that we just read it and we think every term is just kind of ambiguous and it's like, okay, Paul's just talking about salvation, He's using a lot of fancy words, but he just means to be saved. No, he's actually spelling out the process of redemption so thoroughly and meticulously that we would see the beauty of the plans of God to redeem a people for himself, ultimately that we would commune with him for his glory. This morning, we're talking about one small part, okay? Justification. As we talk about justification, I I want you to know that we tend to mix these terms together. We confuse them. We don't pay great attention to them, as they're, as they're revealed to us in the epistle to the Romans, each one of them has meaning in our lives. It will affect greatly the way we think about ourselves in relationship to the living God, okay? And you'll see that this morning with justification. So let me direct your attention. There's, there's three things. I'm going to use red so you can see it, okay? Three things that I want to tell you about justification this morning that you will see from this passage that will greatly influence our understanding of what it means to be justified. First of all, you see the word. It appears in verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It's actually the second time he's used the word justified uh, in this epistle of the Romans, but there it is. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. The, The Greek word, you probably have heard it before, it is the same root as righteousness is dikaiosis or dikaios, okay? It is the Greek technical word that is translated as justified, and it's a very technical word. And let me explain this to you. The first thing I, I do want to do this morning is to give you a, a definition for justification, okay? A, a working definition. And I want to explain that to you by giving you some of the things that justification is not And I think you'll realize then what justification actually is, okay? So imagine yourself, you're in the courtroom, and there's the judge, and there's the prosecution, and here you are, you're seated in the seat of the defendant, kind of like I did when I went to talk to the judge about my speeding ticket, okay? There's a number of things that the judge is not going to ask you about, right? So the judge, I went to go challenge my speeding ticket, the judge says, what do you plead? Do you plead guilty? Do you plead innocent, right? The judge is referring to the case before her. According to the law, right? So the first thing the judge isn't going to ask me, when she asks that question, she's not going to say, are you a good or a bad person? All right? That's, it really is not, not her concern at that moment. Are you generally good or are you generally bad? So justification has nothing to do with moral goodness or moral badness. So you've got to dispel that notion from your head. 
also evidence from my own court experience, the judge really doesn't care at that moment about mercy or pardon. That's not what justification is. When I appeared before the judge, she wasn't like, okay, listen, you look like a sweet young man, all right? And I know you were over the speed limit, but let's talk about reducing that sentence. Let's take some points off your license. She didn't care. She cared about whether I had broken the law, all right? So that's not what justification is is either. Justification is not about uh, pardon or mercy. Let me give you a, a, a definition for justification. We can talk about it. Justification is a declaration, a declaration that justice has been satisfied, okay? A declaration that justice is satisfied. That is what justification actually is. And let me emphasize here, it's a declaration. It's a judicial declaration that that justice is satisfied. It's a forensic declaration. That's what many people call it, a forensic. What that means is it is, a, it is a declaration of a judicial judge of somebody saying, I declare that justice has been satisfied. Not that you are morally innocent or morally good or bad. I declare that according to the law, in this issue, whatever the issue is, I declare that justice has been satisfied. It is a declaration of the judge that according to the law, in this case, the perfect law of God, according to the law, justice is satisfied. Let me tell you why that's important, and then I'll, ex- I'll explain this, okay? It's important because I don't think we have given nearly enough time to thinking about our justification. We don't think about our justification as it applies to our everyday life. I'll give you one example. All the time, I hear Christians who say something like this. They say, I feel as if God is punishing me. You might have said that before. Have you felt like that? I feel as if God is punishing me. And it goes like this. I feel as if God is punishing me for the way that I raised my children. I feel as if God is punishing me for the things I did before I was saved. I feel as if God is punishing me because I can't live according to his law. I feel as if God is punishing me. You fill in the blank, okay? I often hear that. And you know what? A lot of times, we, if we're trying to minister to people who are struggling with that idea, we say, no, no, God's not punishing you. You are his son or daughter, okay? Or God's not punishing you because God wouldn't do that. And I, I tell you, okay, those are, you, those are nice ideas, but those are not the reasons that God doesn't punish us. We can look at this list all day long and we can talk about adoption. There are benefits to our adoption, but that's not the reason that God doesn't punish us. And we could talk about our sanctification, how God is making us more like Jesus. That's not the reason that God doesn't punish us. The reason that he doesn't punish us is because we have been justified. We have been declared by the judge having been, that the law is satisfied according to us. Let me I don't think we, again, I don't think we've thought heavily upon this idea enough. And I, I realized that as I was reading Charles Hodge, his commentary on Romans 3. So let me read to you what Hodge said and then just explain it. He said, justification is always used in the sense antithetical to condemnation. Okay, so anti- antithetical, the opposite of, like the, the, the pure opposite of. There's condemnation, here's justification. To condemn is not merely to punish, but it's to declare the accused guilty or worthy of punishment. And justification is not merely to remit that punishment. That would be pardon. That would be mercy. That's not what justification is. But listen, justification is to declare that punishment cannot be justly inflicted. 
Justification is the declaration that no ground for the infliction of punishment exists. Do you you hear that? Justification is to declare that punishment cannot be justly inflicted. Let me tell you something. If you're struggling with the idea that God is punishing me, or God has punished me, or that he will punish me, let me tell you, your adoption, your sanctification, your glorification, they're all great ideas, but they're not the ideas that answer the question, is God punishing me? Your justification says that God, if you are justified before him, cannot justly inflict punishment on you. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that it's improbable that he will punish you or it's unlikely or, or that uh, he's really nice and so therefore he won't punish you. It means that it is impossible. According to the character of God, it is impossible that he will punish those who have been justified. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, that, that, as, as we go about the, our lives and we think about how we're living and we think about the, the things that we suffer, isn't that amazing to think if we are justified, God cannot punish us? It would be outside of his character. It's impossible for him. It cannot exist. It is not real. It's not an idea that has any grounds in reality. It's absolutely an amazing concept. That's what I mean about thinking about our justification. There are no grounds according to being justified by the law for God to inflict any penalty on punishment or punishment on those whom he is justified. So that's the first thing. That's the definition of justification. That's why it's important. We're talking about justification here. This is not going to be an idea that that Paul will quickly leave from. He will not depart from justification. We will talk about it again and again. You will hear about justification all the way through Romans chapter 9. So that is a working definition of justification. The second thing that Paul does here is he reminds us, he reminds us that the law will not justify. Okay? The law will not justify us. The very thing that I just talked about being declared, uh, being declared, a declaration that justice is satisfied being declared right before God according to the law, Paul reminds us that the law will not justify us. You see that in verse 20. And verse 20 is a clarification of verse 19. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Listen, one of the things that, the, uh, that Paul's working through in Romans is there's a big question mark right here. Okay, the question mark goes something like this. If all of this is being worked out for the glory of God, but because of the fall in the course of history, the question is, how is actually all of this being worked out? What is, the, what is the wheel at the center of this that spins the whole machine? What makes it all to work? And there's a, uh, uh, Romans 1 through 3, Paul's been wrestling with the idea of the law. So he's proposed the idea of the law, and we might also add works here. And he's been asking the question, is this the thing that makes the process of redemption work? Is it obedience to the law or is it our works and obedience uh, that makes this all work out so that we become justified and adopted and sanctified and ultimately glorified? And you see he's been answering the question, no. He says, no, no, of course not. This will not justify you. When Paul speaks here about the law, I believe he has in mind specifically a, a very specific, uh, a rigid understanding of the law of God given uh, on, the, on Mount Sinai through Moses to the people of God. That would have resonated with his original hearers. 
And so he's saying, listen, no, by the, by the Mosaic law that God gave you, you, you will not be justified. You will not satisfy justice. The law will not be satisfied through obedience to it. And I think as Romans goes on, he expands that then to just talk about any works, right? Any of our good works, the way that we live, the way that we carry ourselves, the good things that we think we do, obedience to a law or obedience to any law, right? Obedience to the the golden rule. None of those things, according to your works, none of those things will justify you before God. Now, if you want to kind of get yourselves into like, okay, um, I want to get really into the mind of Paul, and I want to understand what he's saying and what we're meant to be feeling at this moment. Take yourself back to the courtroom scene, okay? Imagine you're now seated in the seat of the defendant, and the prosecution, Paul has laid out his case, and he says, you're guilty. Right? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, and that's you, and you're guilty. And the judge says, all right, you are condemned, and he, and he bangs the hammer on the table, and they, they lead you off to your prison cell, and now you're awaiting your sentencing, okay? Can you imagine what it feels like to be that person? Just imagine it. Envision it for a second. And you're wondering, okay, what, what is my sentence going to be? Is it a death penalty? Is it a life sentence? Is the judge going to have any mercy and grace at all? I really regret the things I've done. Can you just put yourself in that place? Imagine it for a second, because you see, what Paul's leading us to, he, he wants us to feel that. Right? He's led us, Romans 1, 2, and 3, he's led us through the conviction of the prosecution to declare that we're unrighteous, that we stand condemned, that we would feel what it is like to be a condemned person. And that we would resonate with it, right? In the pitiful, hopeless experience of someone who is awaiting their sentencing having already been declared unright, unjustified. That's the place that the Apostle Paul is leading us. And you see then why he says what he says in verse 19. Because in verse 19 he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see what he means? So that every mouth may be stopped. Of course that's what happens when the, the defendant realizes they're guilty and they have no argument before the judge that there's nowhere this is going to go that is hopeful for them, their mouth is stopped. They have nothing to say. There's no argument they can make. There's no way they can weasel their, their way out of this. There's nothing they can say in the face of that condemnation. So every mouth is stopped. And every soul is held accountable to God. I, I want you to know as we think about this phrase here, every mouth is stopped. That's what happens when God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. That's what happens when the Spirit of God works to regenerate a heart, okay? Our mouths are stopped before the living God. Let me tell you, this is how Martin Lloyd-Jones said it. It's very interesting how emphatic he is, but just listen to this. He says, Paul now points out in Romans 3, that when you realize what the law is truly saying to you, the result is that every mouth shall be stopped. You are rendered speechless. You are not a Christian unless you've been made speechless. How do you know whether you're a Christian or not? It's that you stop talking. The trouble with the non-Christian is that he goes on talking. 
People need to have their mouths shut to be stopped. You do not begin to be a Christian until your mouth is shut. It is stopped and you are speechless and have nothing to say. What he means in that context is not that Christians don't speak ever. He means that in the face of the judge, the condemnation of the judge, that the Christian is the one who realizes, I have nothing to say. I have no argument to present before your throne. I have nothing to plead my own righteousness. I have nothing that will satisfy the demands of the law. My mouth is stopped. I cannot say anything. I can only plead for mercy. You realize this, if you've ever, if you've ever been in an argument, you, you realize when you're in an argument and you're, you're going back and forth with the person, you're arguing, they're arguing, you're making a point, they're making a point, you feel like you're right. And if you've ever, I, I know you have, everybody's experienced this, you get to the point where they say something or you realize something and you all of a sudden realize you're wrong. You, have you ever had that? You have, right? You realize, no, no. You, <laughs> yes, you realize that. I know you realize that. Somebody shook their head no as a joke. Uh, you realize it, right? You, you get to that moment. You realize you're wrong, and it's at that moment you're like, oh, I was wrong. I, I, have, I have nothing to say. The whole argument I've just been posing for the last however long, it, you're right. I've just heard it. My ears were open. I just saw it, okay? And it is that moment of silence, like nothing I can do can undone what I've just said. I'm, I'm wrong, okay? That's what Paul's describing that the Christian experiences before the throne of God. When the heart is regenerated and the condemnation is realized, the guilt of the defendant is made clear. The Christian who has been given ears to, to hear and eyes to see, the Christian is the one whose mouth is stopped. And they realize that they'll be held accountable before God. You see, what Paul has been doing is his whole design so far has been to prove that men cannot be justified by their own righteousness in order to prepare them to receive the righteousness of God. That's why he's saying, by works of the law, no man will be justified. Speechless is, in our defense is the way that we receive the gospel. Having nothing to say of our own accord, of our own righteousness, of our own goodness, is the way we receive the gospel. That there's nothing to say that can avail us before the throne of God. How good is that? When we find ourselves in that position. Right? That's what we pray for our children for. That's what we hope every day to be renewed in our own hearts. That's what we recognize uh, brings us to the place of receiving the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, His Son. That we are speechless before the throne. The last thing that Paul does in this passage is he really shows us the proper role of the law. He shows us the proper role of the law, which he has just said... Uh, will not justify you before the throne of God. Remember, again, this is our big question. What is, it, what is it that's turning the wheels of redemption? It's not the law, but then the question remains, then why do we have the law? And he's answered this in Romans 1, 2, and 3, but he does it again here, so I just want to, I do want to harp on it because Paul harps on it. Look at what he says again at the end of verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight... Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Okay? What is the role of the law? I'm going to write it in blue so you can see it. The role of the law is knowledge of sin. It's the knowledge of sin. 
And here why, here's why this is important, okay, the knowledge of sin. Um, I, I think often in the Christian church, we, we misunderstand the function of the law. And so I want to be crystal clear on what Paul is saying in this epistle to Romans, because inevitably, many of you have misunderstood or struggled with this in your past. And I'll pose it to you like a question, okay? When we think about Old Testament believers, how were they justified before God? You can pick anyone you want. Let's go with Moses. How was Moses justified before God? We know that he was, but how was it, according to Moses, how was it that it was declared of him that justice was satisfied on Moses' behalf? How was Moses justified before God? Uh, D.G. Barnhouse uh, said, as he was speaking to his congregation about Romans 3, he said, I asked somebody this question. I said to them, how was Moses justified before God? And they gave me the answer that most people often give me. Moses was justified by works of the law. And then Barnhouse said, I I said to them, okay, here, let me give you my Bible. Show me in, in the Bible where it says that Moses was justified by works of the law. And he said, this person kind of paged through, and they looked for a while, and they eventually realized, it doesn't say that Moses was justified by works of the law. You can't find it in Scripture. Moses was not justified by works of the law. You will never find any human being in all of Scripture, all the history of man, who has been justified by works of the law, except for Jesus Christ. But we'll talk about that in a second, okay? No human being will be justified by works of the law, nor have they ever this is what Barnhouse went on to say to his congregation. And listen, this is, this is like, aha, there's an aha moment. He says it in such a way that it really should shake you awake when it comes to justification. Listen to what he says. At the risk of being greatly misunderstood, I wish to set forth the fact that God never gave the law of Moses with the thought that anyone would ever keep it. Again, except for Jesus. And the Lord Jesus never gave the Sermon on the Mount with the thought that anyone would ever live by it in perfection. In fact, the law was not even a goal to aim at. The law was a standard that was given in order to convince men of their hopeless incapacity so that they might come to God in grace. I don't know if anybody's ever stated it so bluntly. The law of God was given as a standard in order to convince men of their own hopeless incapacity so that they might come to God in grace. You don't believe him? It's exactly what Paul just said. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let me tell you about that word knowledge just briefly. If you were thinking of of the word to know, it's just passed through my mind. How do I lose a Greek word? Ah, who knows the Greek word for knowledge? Ah, gnosis, right? Gnosko, thank you. I love that you know Greek. This helps me so much. Okay, gnosko. It's the, it's the word for knowledge to know, all right? And, and, and the, the English translation doesn't help us here because the English translation makes us think that Paul just used the word gnosko. He didn't, okay? The word that he actually uses is epigonosko, epi, the prefix. 
It's the prefix that means about, around, a circumspect word. If you put these two words together, it means to have a broad, circumspect a, a knowledge, a comprehensive knowledge, okay? Actually, what verse 20 says is, by, no, by works of the law, no man will be justified, for through the law comes an extensive, full, circumspect knowledge of the law. That is to say that through the law, we really get a good understanding of our own sin and condemnation. That's the design of the law Paul has just told us. So let me tell you something as we wrap up this passage this morning. The law has a great power. The law has a great power, and it is the power of condemnation. That's the power of the law. You look at the law, you say, man, that that law of God is miraculous. It's beautiful the way he gave it. It is. But the law doesn't bring life. The law brings condemnation. And the law for us is the thing that exposes the heart and it convicts us of sin and it shows us the things we fail to do and it shows us the things that we do against God and it shows us the filth of our own insides and it shows us the condemnation we deserve and it reveals the penalty for sin so we get the vileness of that sin and it shows us how much the wrath of God is deserved by us and we deserve the wrath of God. That's the power of the law. But the power of the law must be taken together with the power of the gospel. Right? These two things must be joined together if we're to understand what God is doing in and through us. Okay? The question really is, will you allow the law of God to slay you? Right? To convict you? To trample you underfoot by the law so that you might be saved by the gospel? Will you allow the law to expose you? To make you feel terribly uncomfortable? to show you your great need, to penetrate your heart, to convict you and condemn you, will you allow the law to have that power over you? Because that partnered together with the power of the gospel is that which saves us, moves us to faith and repentance by the work of the Spirit. It is the power of the gospel to save. It's the power of the law to condemn. God uses both of those things in those whom he calls to be his children. But ultimately, it is the power of the gospel which saves us. As we work through the epistle of the Romans, we got this question mark here. What is it that turns the wheels of salvation? It is Jesus Christ. We can draw a cross there. Right in the middle. It is Jesus Christ. Ultimately, Paul will say, it is our union with him. It is our union with Christ Jesus that justifies us and makes us presentable to God, and sanctifies us, and glorifies us. It is through our union with Christ that God calls and regenerates, that He foreknows and predestines that we be conformed to the likeness of His Son. Through union with Christ, this is all worked out to the glory of God the Father. That's where Paul is moving in this epistle. And the work of the law is the work of condemnation. The work of the good news of Jesus Christ is the work of salvation. That we might be saved by grace, recognizing that no works of our own will justify us. But only the gospel, the good news of salvation through another who died on our behalf, that our sins would be paid for, that his righteousness would be ours, imputed to us through faith, that we would glorify the Father in eternity future through communion with him, this by his design. It's beautiful, isn't it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent him to this earth. We thank you that we are not justified by works, for we know that by works no man may be justified. And the law has an important power in this world. It is the power to show us our need. To sit in the seat of the defendant, to hear the reading of the prosecution, and to recognize that a just judge stands before us and condemns us for our sin. This is the power of the law. This is the end of our works. We thank you, our God and our Father, that in the, before the foundation of the earth, in the course of history, you worked out your plan of salvation. To send your Son to die on our behalf that we might receive by grace and mercy the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of life that we might be called sons and daughters of the living God. Help us, Lord God, to rest in our union with Christ that has led to our justification. You, the judge, have said, for you, my children, who have received Christ by faith, the justice of the law has been satisfied. And you are now no longer under condemnation but you are set free. For us, the children of God, there is no wrath, there is no penalty, there is no condemnation. For we have been declared right. Give us rest in this truth, our God and our Father. We thank you. We honor and praise you this morning. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, we ask all of this. Amen.